So we are looking at Leviticus 2 and 3. James read um, a, a few verses that I had selected to kind of give you um, kind of an overall kind of picture of what's happening in these because if we'd read all of it, we'd have been here for a lot longer, which is okay. But um, yeah, so tonight we're looking at these, uh, these two sacrifices, the, the grain offering and the peace offering. And as I was thinking about what the function of these um, offerings are, I, I was thinking about, um, well, I wasn't, I haven't actually, I'm going to use a Doctor Who episode as our intro tonight. I've never seen this episode, but I was looking up, there's this great website, TV Tropes, it has a lot of themes on it that I found this. Um, there's, a, there's a Doctor Who episode from 1985 uh, called Vengeance on Varos. And in this episode, the doctor ends up on this planet called Varos that, um, that every year they host a, a, what they call a deadly game, where uh, everybody tunes in on their TV and citizens vote on who's going to participate in this deadly game, which is like a um, kind of like most extreme elimination challenge, but, but instead of like getting hilariously knocked into a pool of water, you get knocked into a pool of acid and you die. Um, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's this, there's this rebel on this planet. Uh, his name is John Dar, and he's scheduled for execution in the deadly game. And he escapes, and the doctor and the rebels convince the governor of the planet to stop the game. And the conversation that ends the episode, uh, it goes like this. One character says, no more executions, torture, nothing. And another says, it's all changed, we're free. He says, are we? Well, yes. What shall we do? And then the other rebel says, I don't know. And that's kind of it. And I can't help but wonder if this is how we feel about our faith. This is how we feel about God. Like, okay, um, God accepts Jesus in my place. What do we do? I don't know. And, And we're left with this kind of void of like not knowing, okay, like, like I'm like, I'm, I'm saved, but what, like, what now, what do I do now? And I have this working theory that, um, I'm kind of testing out tonight. Um, but, but I know, um, this is my fifth year on this campus. Um, I've been with y'all for a long time now and whether you're brand new tonight or you've known me for a little while, um, at some point in your time here, you have felt like you're faking it. And you, 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 know, you know what I mean by that. You feel like your faith is somehow not real or your faith is not genuine or it's not deep enough because you look around and you see everybody else who's maybe doing a little more or a little more on fire or a little more this or a little more that. And you, and you feel like you're just a bad Christian. You feel like you're faking it. But maybe, um, maybe the reason that you struggle with feeling like you're faking it is because you have not been sold on the version of Christianity that the Bible teaches, right? Because we treat it like this. We treat it like, okay, Jesus gets me in with his grace. Like he saves me, praise God for the cross, all that stuff. Like he saves me, but now I've got to keep myself in by um, making tons of disciples or I've got to go and uh, change the world or like make heaven crowded or like whatever the, the slogan of that might be. I've got to live a good enough life to stay in that God gets me in with his grace and now it's up to me to show him that he made a good decision by saving me. And then we fail at doing those things. And so we begin to think the problem is with us and not the version of the faith that we're trying to live out. Maybe you don't identify with that at all, but I know that at times in my life, I definitely have. 
And I think that's where these next two sacrifices, this grain offering and this peace offering, I think this is where they help us. This is where they show us the what now of the faith. That God has accepted another in my place. He's accepted Christ on my behalf. And now here's how we live. Here's how we live a Christian life. And I think that we live the Christian life by living a life of gratitude and by throwing a lot of parties. Be thankful, have fun. That's how you be a Christian. Let's explore that. The offerings. We've talked about these offerings. So I want us to look at them briefly. The first one we come to is the grain offering. The grain offering was a gift or a tribute offering. And unlike the burnt offering, uh, this one had the purpose of feeding people. Right? If you remember last week, we talked about the burnt offering, that it was completely burned to ash, that there was nothing left over. But this one was intended to feed the priest. It was intended to feed Aaron and his sons. And there's a couple different ways that you could do this sacrifice, but generally you would bring it to the priest. Uh, he would take a portion of it and throw it into the fire, and the rest would be given to, to the other priests. There was no leaven in this offering. There was no honey in this offering. But there had to be this thing called the salt of the covenant included. And there's no atonement mentioned in this sacrifice because it's entirely a gift. And it's also pointed out in these, in these verses that this gift is one that is called most holy. There's, that's the basic, there's some differences there, but that's the basic gist of it. The portion that's thrown into the fire is referred to as the memorial portion, and it did two things. The first thing is it served as a representative of the whole in the same way that uh, the bull or the goat or the turtle dove or whatever from last week, the same way that that served as the representative of the whole to go onto the altar and be burned up. This grain offering did the same thing. You would go and you would, you would harvest your crops and the, the portion of it that the priest would throw in the fire would be a way to say to the Lord, hey, everything I have is yours. Like you have given this to me and I am giving you in return everything that I have. But it also served as a request because in this sacrifice, the worshiper was saying to God, Lord, please remember me. That you have, you have blessed me. You have given me all these things. Now please continue to remember me. And then you get these explanations of yeast and honey and salt, um, specifically that the first two are not to be used, but salt has to be. And we're not told exactly why in Leviticus, like why you don't use leaven or honey, yeast or honey in these things. Um, we don't know. Um, there's some theories out there, but I don't think any of them are like super conclusive or that matter. They matter all that much. Um, but I want to focus on this idea of the salt, because I think as I was reading this, I learned something new and I thought this was just freaking cool. Um, and I'm going to tell you about it in part. It's because salt is a preservative that like we know it like keeps things, you know, fresh. Um, but one, one commentator points out that when covenants were made, each party ate salt, which in some settings may have even been passed around on the edge of a blade of a sword. And so those who tasted the salt became covenant allies, or if salt was between them, they were in covenant. The requirement of salt for the meal offering then was filled with significance for the covenant people. This reminded the people of two things. One, that they had tasted the salt with God. Like that was like a thing that they said, Lord, we have tasted the salt together. Which again, just sounds kind of awesome. And it reminded they had peace with them, but it also reminded that they had covenant obligations to fulfill as well. There, were, there was their end of the deal to hold up. A commentator said to add salt to the covenant was a reminder that the worshiper was an eternal covenant with God. This meant that God would never forsake him and also that the worshiper had a perpetual duty to uphold and keep covenant law. 
Um, so, you know, I'm big on like reclaiming the original meanings of words. So like, let's just make like being salty, like a Christian thing now, right? Like we're salty with God. It means we're at peace with him. It means that it means that God has handed us a sword with salt on it and we've licked the salt off the sword. Like if you don't think that's cool, like, I, I don't know. It's just an awesome visual to me, but the grain offerings served the purpose of reminding God's people that everything they had was because of him. All their gifts, all their crops, all the peace that they had among one another, everything they had was because of him. And in response to his generosity and grace, they would live as those totally devoted to him to show that he is the Lord. That this would be a covenant, or this would be an offering that would remind them that they were God's covenant people and that this was how they were to live. But then we see this thing called the peace offering. And the peace offering is called a holy offering, not a most holy offering. And the difference there, and this will come up a few more times in Leviticus, but when you hear most holy, what's happening is this is intended to feed the priests. Like this goes to, this is part of what they get for serving God's people in this role. When it's holy, it's like, hey, this is just a celebration with the people around you. Um, and... Basically what this meant is that this peace offering, which is an animal from the herd, is meant to be sacrificed and then shared. That this was the ancient Israelite version of the meat wave, where they would get together and they would kill a bull and then they would all eat it together. It was a party. It was a celebration. And, and, and there goes into this weird description of like what the fat covering the entrails and the kidneys were supposed to do and the long lobe of the liver, which I don't even know what that means, um, that these things were burnt on the offering or on the altar um, and all this stuff. That, but what those meant, like at the time, those were like the choice cuts of meat and those, those were given to God and then everything else was cut up and said, hey, again, let's have a party. This, uh, this peace offering is a celebration of, of the peace that the people had with God and it was meant to be shared with everyone. And so that's why with this one, it's like you don't get all the specifications of like the turtle dove and, and some, of the, some of the smaller sacrifices because even the wealthiest people were meant to share this sacrifice with everyone. That when the bull went to the altar for the peace offering, everybody got to partake. So that's like the technical explanation of this. What's the reality of it? What, what's, what's the assumption that the Bible is making about who we are? When we take the burnt offering of last week and the grain and the peace offerings of this week together, we see that the Bible is making an assumption about you and about me. And it's one that I think is absolutely true, and it's this. You are going to find something that makes meaning of your life, and once you find it, you will sacrifice everything to have it. And once you've done that, you're going to order your entire life around it. That's what this, these sacrifices are showing. The Jewish religious life in the Old Testament was set up this way. You sacrificed the burnt offering. You showed gratitude with the grain offering. And you celebrated with the peace offering. That's how it worked. But I think that all of our lives work this way. We give something up. We're overwhelmed with the sense of gratitude when it's accepted. And then we want to celebrate with the other people that we have experienced this with. Again, I cannot stress how much everything in your life works this way. Um, this last Saturday, uh, for the first time for some of us all this, this season, many of us, myself included, sacrificed at least four hours of our afternoon to our favorite college football team. 
that we sat there on the couch and we watched our team play. And hopefully you're one of the teams that had a snoozer week one and one. Um, you were grateful that your sacrifice of time was accepted by the football gods. And then what did you do? You texted your friends and family. You called your friends and family and you talked about the game. I went to Ole Miss. We played a glorified high school team. I broke down every single stat with my dad after the game. Like every one of them. Did that game tell us anything? Not at all. But that's what happened. We all, we all find stuff like this where we sacrifice our time, our effort, ourselves. We, we rejoice that the sacrifice is accepted and then we celebrate with the people around us. This is the order of our lives. But what happens when that sacrifice isn't accepted? You get bitter. And one of my favorite examples of this is from the uh, great piece of American uh, cultural artifacts, the TV show The Office, right? Um, there's an episode where uh, Jan Levinson is explaining why she decided to publicly date Michael Scott. And she says, I'm taking a calculated risk. What's the upside? I overcome my nausea, fall deeply in love, babies, normalcy, no more self-loathing. Downside, I date Michael Scott publicly and collapse on myself like a dying star. <laughs> and, and, and what we know from the rest of the series is that she does, in fact, collapse on herself like a dying star. Um, everything in your life works this way. Everything does. Your relationships, your friendships, your relationship with school, your, your identity, your sexuality, it does not matter. Everything works this way. You find something that makes sense of your life. You give everything to it. If it's accepted, you celebrate with people. That's how it works. There's another example from a writer named Tim Kreider, which rhymes. I didn't mean for that to happen, but it does. Um, but he says this. He said, years ago, a friend of mine had a dream about a strange invention. A staircase that you could descend deep underground in which you heard recordings of all the things anyone had ever said about you, both good and bad. The catch was... You had to pass through all the worst things that people had said before you could get to the highest compliments at the very bottom. There is no way I would ever make it more than two and a half steps down such a staircase, but I understand it's terrible logic. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. Do you hear what Kreider is saying? He is laying out the sacrifices that we often have to choose between. Do I want to be truly loved? Or do I want to be truly known? And this is the tension that we experience in our lives. Because if I want to be truly known, I have to risk scaring people off and therefore maybe sacrifice being truly loved. And I, I don't think anything in the world has, has, has codified this struggle more than social media. Social media does it brilliantly. Um, that we see the people that want to be loved but not known. In, in very technical and psychological terms, we, we refer to this phenomenon as the thirst trap. But you know the thirst trap. It is the perfectly curated post that begs for love. It begs for likes. You know, you finish your, you finish your workout in the gym and you, you know, got, got, the, got the gains. I'm like, you don't have to take your shirt off for that. But you do, right? Urban Dictionary defines the thirst trap as a sexy photograph or flirty message Posted on social media for the intent of causing others to publicly profess their attraction. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You all, as soon as I said that, you knew exactly who I was talking about. You want to feel loved and accepted, so you sacrifice being known. You don't show off your failures. 
You don't show off the, the picture that didn't quite have the perfect lighting. You don't show off the other arm that doesn't look quite as good. You don't show off the, the, the blemish on there, the acne on your face you had that day. You don't show off the things that don't allow you to be known because you so desperately want to be loved. You desperately want to date somebody. You desperately want to have a great group of friends to fit in with or to fit in somewhere. You want the benefits of belonging, of having a boyfriend or girlfriend or a group of friends or whatever. And so you sacrifice being known for who you truly are in order to get those things. It's one of my favorite minor plot points in Parks and Rec. There's an episode where they're doing a garage sale and Anne... Uh, Anne is selling all of her boyfriend boxes, right? She's going through all the different guys that she dated and what she realized she was doing, she was taking on the personality of every one of these guys. Like with, with Chris, um, she was dating Chris, um, she was dating Andy, she had this like major uh, grunge phase where she was wearing like big oversized flannels. With Chris, it was all this bizarre workout equipment. Um, with Tom, it was unnecessary items and just crippling credit card debt. Right? We, we know how this works. We sacrifice major parts of ourselves being known so that we can feel loved. But what ends up happening? You just feel miserable. Because the person that's loved is not you. And nobody knows you. And then, on top of that, think about the, think about the Christian thirst trap, right? The one that has the very carefully curated picture of the cup of coffee with the perfectly highlighted Bible and the perfectly little inspirational phrase right underneath it. Like, just having my little quiet time with Jesus. Like, whatever, it's wonderful. Like, what are you doing? You're screaming, look at how spiritual I am. Look at how together I've got this. Like, I'm even, I'm even like, let's put like, I'm at, a, I'm at a Bible study on a Tuesday night talking about the weirdest book of the Bible. I'm so freaking holy. Right? This is what we do. But whenever stuff gets hard, we want to move on. We want to run because the, the thought of someone actually getting in and knowing our insides and knowing who we truly are, this little thing called sin, which we're going to talk a lot about next week, it stops us dead in our tracks. We don't want anything to do with it. Love me, don't know me. And y'all, so often, this sums up our relationship with God. That we put up this massive front in hopes that he will somehow accept this pitiful offering of Instagram likes in order that he would look at us and declare us righteous. And we never deal with anything. But then you see the flip side. You see the, the concept of being known but not loved. And this is the maybe lesser known term, but one I still love called the slacktivist. This is the person whose thoughts and opinions on every issue are well known. They're the friend who takes up every issue, every cause. You already know how they're going to vote in 24. You know exactly which one of Taylor Swift's heirs they belong to. Like, you know all of these things. But they don't seem to really care about anybody else around them. And you realize that outside of a few, like, publicly sort of known trivia facts, you don't know anything about them either. You can't possibly love them because you don't know them. And... and um, in, when I was in college uh, in 2004, so before probably half this room was even born, um, yeah, right? Um, there was this uh, there was this movie that came out called uh, called Invisible Children, and uh, it took it took college campuses by storm. Let me rephrase that: it took college girls by storm, which meant all the college guys were also into it. Um, guilty as charged, but but. It, it was this. It was this movie. It was this movie about um, 
the invisible children in Uganda who were these children that uh, this group, the, the Lord's Resistance Army, was like kidnapping them and making them fight, uh, fight in this war. And, and, uh, and for one, it came out that the movie itself was not completely accurate. But, but what it did was it got everybody really passionate about this issue. Everybody cared about the invisible children. And so because we cared about the invisible children, we all uh, got like cardboard boxes and went and like camped out in the Grove, which is like the big place on Ole Miss's campus that we tailgate. And like that was what you did. And it was like, hey, wait, at one point it was like, hey, how is this helping? It was like, it's not, but we care. You know, like, like we're not doing anything, but we really care. And sometimes that even ends up doing um, more harm than good. But the crazy thing about both of these is that they're both sides of the same coin. By sacrificing either being known or being loved, you're hoping that someone or something is going to ultimately accept you and declare you good and righteous. But all it ends up doing is making you anxious, bitter, and incapable of having real relationships. Sounds great, right? Love that? Yeah. And that's why it's important for us to get the order of these sacrifices right. The burnt offering has to come first. Leviticus 1 has to come before Leviticus 2 and 3, not because that's how numbers work, but because that's how God has ordered this. Because we have to see, before we try to do anything else, that God has already accepted another in our place. That God has already totally consumed another on our behalf so that now we can just live out of gratitude. We can stop trying. We can stop working so hard. And that we can actually celebrate. Because sacrifice leads to intimacy. When we're willing to die to the version of ourselves that doesn't actually exist, then we can begin to have peace with God and peace with others. And the only way that we can truly be fully known and loved is the cross. Because Jesus knew the depths of our hearts. He knew the darkness and the evil and the sin and all the things that live inside of us and went to the cross anyway. And what better reason to to be thankful and to just throw awesome parties than that? That's what I think Leviticus 2 and 3 are showing us. And so the meaning behind all this is to remember that the fundamental question that we're trying to answer in the book of Leviticus is this. How how will we live as a redeemed and yet still sinful people in the presence of a holy God? And these sacrifices show us just that. The progression and the order of these sacrifices are key. The burnt offering went first, which declared you're in, you're accepted. The grain offering came second. It represented commitment that God, because you have bound yourself to me, because you have accepted me, everything I have is yours. And then the peace offering went third. It represents the joyful response to God's peace that is to be lived out and shared with others. But the entire thing is based on God accepting the burnt offering. How do you get in good with God? How do you know that God loves you, cares about you, whatever? is that you look and see that he has accepted another in your place. So what's going on with you and God? This is the answer. If you can't grasp that the only way that you're accepted before God is on behalf of another, you're going to spend your entire life trying to earn his favor, and at some point, you're just going to break. It's just going to kill you. And we see this, I think, in the parable of the prodigal son. 
Jesus tells a story in the New Testament about a younger brother um, who reached the point with his father where he comes and says, hey, dad, you're dead to me. I'm leaving. Give me what you owe me. And the father does. And he leaves. He goes to a far country. And we focus on, we focus on this relationship with the father and the younger brother, but we miss what's happening with the older brother the whole time. Because at the end of the parable, it is the younger brother who is in the house celebrating with his father. And it's the older brother who is standing outside bitter and refusing to come inside and party with his family. Why? Because he spent his entire life thinking that he would earn his father's favor by working hard and doing the right thing. And what did he end up doing? Hating his father and his brother outside the house. So are you trying to show, am I trying to show God how committed I am to him by offering up my best, whatever that even is, in hopes that he will accept me? Or am I giving my life to him out of the gratitude that he has already accepted another in my place? That's all the difference in the world right there. See, we talked last week about how Jesus is the sacrifice. And there's a story I didn't tell you that there was this, um, like on the, like back in the olden days, and I don't know, maybe they still do it now. Um, but like in, like in prairies where like farming was, was really essential um, to life. Um, and there would, be, there would be a wildfire that would be spreading across the plains. What the farmers would do is they would go out and they would burn a big ring around their property and, and just absolutely scorch it. So that when the fire came to their property, the fire would pass them by because there was nothing left to consume. That's what Jesus did for us. That Jesus bore that that wrath. Jesus bore the, the fire so that when God's wrath comes for us, it passes by because there's nothing left to consume. Because that's it. So I want to wrap it up with three things that I think this means. The first thing is that when you grasp this, you will begin to live your whole life in devotion to God. This grain offering showed the Israelites and us that everything we do is done unto the Lord because every good gift comes from Him. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That His peace, His gift to us, His grace, His peace is all-encompassing. Your school, the classes you're going to go to tomorrow, even the ones that you don't like, to the glory of God. Your dating relationships, your extracurriculars, your social media activity, whatever, to the glory of God. This doesn't mean that we simply go through life in a holy huddle, never interacting with the world around us. It means that we acknowledge that this is God's world. That's what we just saying. This is my father's world. That this is his world and everything we have in it is a gift from him. And we approach him accordingly. The second thing I want to take away is that this is the key to community. If we're walking around thinking that God's going to accept me based on my efforts, then you're going to be jaded and bitter and everybody else is either going to be a means to an end or competition. The only way that you can lay that aside is by accepting that God has accepted me based on him, not on me. That one went before us and that's what leads to true gratitude, gratitude and true friendship. And the third thing that this means is that maybe our lives should look a lot more like feasts than they actually do. Um, sometimes I look at like the way that like as like evangelicals and American Christians that we kind of like interact with culture. I'm like, this is kind of boring. And when you read like in the Bible, it's like God's talking about heaven, like being a feast and being a party. And 
maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we should find ways to get together and eat together and celebrate together because we're just constantly rejoicing in what God has done for us. Because y'all, this was a good meal. This was the choice cut from the herd of the flock. This isn't like somebody saying, hey, come over. Like I've, got, I've made a casserole. Bryson, I know you're a big casserole guy, but you know, this is not, this is not like, this is not coming over for like some Kraft mac and cheese or something like this is like, Hey, we've got a prime rib. We've got a brisket. We've got the choice cuts that God has given us this to enjoy in his presence. And you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that in the new Testament, when God is describing like how we're going to stay in communion with him, that he actually gives us a meal. He says you were going to eat bread and you were going to drink wine. And this is what's going to remind you of your gratitude and your celebration of who I am and what he's done. That you were going to, um, you're going to proclaim my death and resurrection until I come again. Is the Lord telling us that. And in our church, we do that weekly in communion. And it points us to the day that one day, someday, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And you know what happens after he does that? We sit down with him at his table and feast with him forever. That all of heaven is just one long peace offering. You do realize that heaven is described in several places as a feast. And so here's the good news. That Jesus was consumed so that you can be known and loved. You don't have to be pretentious anymore. You don't have to pretend like you have it together in ways that you don't. You don't have to earn God's favor and love. He's already given it to you. You simply rest in the fact that another was consumed in your place and the gratitude and the celebration follow naturally. Consider that invitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, um, thank you for this word. We thank you that you, um, you do, in fact, accept us uh, because you've accepted Jesus that you, you accept us in spite of ourselves, despite ourselves, and yet you still love us because you love your son. And so, Lord, I, I don't want to assume that everybody here tonight already knows this or believes this. Um, I pray for those of us here tonight that don't, God, that this would be something that sounds really beautiful, that it sounds like a party that you're inviting us into. Lord, may tonight be the night that we decide that you call us home to come in and to celebrate with you and to sit at your table. And Lord, for those of us that maybe we do believe and we're just struggling, that we're just having a hard time with the now what, God, would we be able to come back to the basics of these sacrifices to see what it is that we have to be grateful for and what it is that we have to celebrate? Lord Jesus, would you do these things in our hearts? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.